Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina's daily email, app, and website give you a digest of all the important news of the day coming out of China, complete with links to original sources. Go to subchina.com to subscribe and get the app wherever you ordinarily go for such things. I am Kaiser Guo, and I am joined right here at the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina, by an immigrant whom Donald Trump has not yet threatened to deport, but probably should, Mr. Jeremy Goldhorn, better known by his Chinese communist name, Yumi. How are you doing there, Jeremy? <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> I'm uh, down here starting the uh, sixth uh, international, and it's very good. Uh, and I'm delighted that our high-tech hookup with Beijing seems to be working very well, so we can welcome Ada Shen on the wire from the Beijing Bookworm to today's show. Welcome back to the Seneca hosting hot seat, Ada. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's good to be back. It's a absolutely gorgeous day here in Beijing. Fall has fallen, and it's a great day to be connecting with you back in to uh, be sitting North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, to be sitting indoors with an air filter. So you get like two weeks of good weather now. Uh, <laughs> air filters on still just in case. <laughs> so aside from the delightful air, one thing I really enjoyed about living and working in, in China and in Beijing is the diversity of people I've met and worked with and become friends with. And related to that, and perhaps partly because immersing yourself in the Chinese world is really like immersing yourself in a whole different planet. A career in China for both Chinese and foreign nationals often encompasses a great variety of roles and experiences. Our guest today epitomizes such a career. A graduate of Stanford University's master's program in Chinese language and literature, John Holden first came to China in 1974. Amongst many other things, he has worked as an interpreter for National Geographic teams researching the Yellow River and Tibet. He's been chairman of the China division of the massive American conglomerate that no one's ever heard of called Cargill, uh, <laughs> president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. <laughs> he served as uh, chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in Beijing and has been an associate of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also been an advisor and senior executive to investment bankers and multinational communications firms, and currently is the dean of the newly founded Yenjing Academy at Peking University, whose mission is to foster an interdisciplinary approach to the study of historical and contemporary China and its role in the world. In other words, he's one of the most seasoned, experienced China hands around, and we are delighted to have him. Welcome to Seneca, John. Jeremy, it's great to be with you. Kaiser and Ada, it's fun to be with old friends here this morning. Uh, by the way, it's, it's associate dean, not dean. I do have a boss. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Just making sure. 
John, of the many, many wise things that you've said to me over the over many, many years of, of, of our acquaintance, um, the one that I keep quoting is it was maybe just last year that you said to me, uh, the reason that Americans will never really understand China is because of the, the utter opacity of the Chinese system, that it's so closed. Uh, and that, that that they you know kind of defiantly hold up this this idea that it is kind of impenetrably monolithic, but just for the exact opposite reason, the Chinese will not understand the United States because it's just too damned open. Because you know, w- what is the voice coming out of the United States? There's no there's no signals. I I thought that was terrific, and I've been giving you due credit every time I've quoted you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Know. I'm I'm still waiting for the commission checks, I will, uh, yeah. Kaiser. <laughs> It's in the mail. It's in the yeah. Mail. Okay. Well, I think it's a. It is a point worth thinking about, contemplating. Certainly, with regards to high politics, the Chinese system is opaque. And I had the interesting experience of talking about this with Wang Daohan, who, former mayor of Shanghai, was a senior advisor and mentor to Jiang Zemin and other people, a very important intellectual. I complained to him that China was so difficult for us to understand, and he said, "You know, you're right." I'm going to try to explain to the to foreigners um, my personal views of where China is going. And he said, I'd like to publish an article in Foreign Affairs under my name uh, to that effect. I waited uh, for the article to be published. It, uh, it didn't come out. Uh, he passed away. Oh, and the mantle, the mantle was passed over to Zheng Bijian, who in fact then did complete that project and published an article in Foreign Affairs that talked about the peaceful rise of China. And we know what happened after that. That was then, that became a little bit controversial because Jiechi, the rise of China in that tone, became a little bit hard for people to to grasp. But anyway, the the peaceful rise of China came out of that uh, initiative by the Chinese leadership to try to explain uh, to the world where they're headed. And I I would say that it hasn't been super successful. No, indeed, it has not been. Uh, I mean, you know, you're you're an interpreter. in, in the large sense, but also in the sort of more narrow linguistic sense, you were actually an interpreter for National Geographic teams that were researching, as Jeremy said in the introduction, the Yellow River in Tibet back in 1981, which was actually the same year that I first traveled to China as a lad. Uh, but that was when, you know, travel in China was still very difficult for any foreigner. Uh, where did you travel for that job? And, and tell us about the research that you were helping with uh, back then in 81. Yeah, so that was the the probably the best job I ever had. Um, If they had said to me, I'm sorry, we're not going to pay you for what you just did, I would have said, fine, I'll pay you. But it was was an absolutely glorious experience. I spent two months uh, on the Yellow River, up and down the Yellow River, and then five weeks in, in the TAR. I was an interpreter, and the geographic actually gave me some cameras, some lenses, and a whole bunch of films, so I did some photography for them up in Tibet, got one picture published. But this was in the early days when China was really opening up. Hu Yobang was in charge, and he gave a green light. Uh, he said, wherever you want to go, whoever, whomever you see, uh, you can stop and talk to them. Wow. So we had enormous access, and we had a lot of fun talking to people, to farmers, factory workers, government officials. And it was uh, it was a marvelous experience. It yielded a book called Journey into China, published in 1982, uh, which was the biggest selling book that National Geographic had ever published. It made them a lot of money. And it was a joint venture with Xinhua News Agency, who, because they couldn't control the editorial content, eventually dropped out, and you won't see their name on the book. 
John, not too long after that, in 1986, you became chairman, or chair, I suppose, as they put it these days, of Cargill China Limited. That must have been a pretty amazing experience from what I know the 1980s were a heady times to be doing business in China. The Cold War was still on, and the idea of a market or even a, a partly market-oriented economy in China was something that many observers and also members of the Chinese Communist Party did not see as realistic. Can you describe some of the challenges of your job back then? And you know, what did you actually do on a day-to-day -day basis? Cargill is a privately held commodity trading and processing company. It's, uh, it's all over the world. It's, very, it's an extremely well-managed company. And I had a wonderful 12-year career there. I think back fondly on it often. What, my job was uh, business development in China. And that was to look at ways in which we could make investments in processing industries. The first uh, investment that we made was in a cottonseed crushing plant in Shandong, in a Pinquin Dichu, in a county that was off limits to foreigners, actually. We had to get daily passes to go there initially. It was very strange. And the you hit the nail on the head with the issue of uh, market economies because cottonseed and cotton were uh, government-controlled commodities. And for us to imagine making money in processing that that oil seed, we had to know what the price was going to be of both the inputs and the outputs. And we negotiated ultimately a toll processing agreement and guaranteed us a, a margin that was going to be our profits. Uh, we didn't know that the year after we got into the investment, they deregulated the cotton <laughs> seed industry. And our partner, who was supposed to be providing us the raw materials, no longer had control over it. So we were on our own. It was a it was a really big learning experience for Cargill. We learned a lot uh, and lost a certain amount of money. It was not a big investment. It was only $10 million. But um, we eventually closed it down. But uh, we paid tuition and learned a lot. <laughs> Yeah. It seems like you're probably one of the few people in China that I know who have witnessed the entire arc of, of, of China kind of entering the global economic system, of how China has opened up on many, many fronts. Um, so I guess my question for you is, is how would you compare the China that you envisioned or imagined or hoped back, you know, 42 years ago when you first arrived, compared to what you see now in 2016? Well, Ada, I think the, and I've been thinking about this question a little bit uh, recently, and one of the really most interesting experiences I had early in my exposure to China happened after I left Stanford. I was in Washington, D.C., working for a consulting and translating company. I got a job interpreting for the Encyclopedia Britannica. They announced a joint project with the Chinese Encyclopedia Publishing House. This was in the summer of 1980. And the deal was for the China uh, Encyclopedia Publishing House to translate the, the entire Encyclopedia Britannica into Chinese, which they did. I got to know uh, Liu Junqi, Jiang Chunfang, and a very interesting fellow, Yan Ming Fu, who rose to very senior positions in the Chinese government. A fascinating guy. He had been Mao Zedong's Russian interpreter. After the press conference, um, we had nothing to do. He said to me, what are you doing tonight, John? And I said, nothing. He says, come up to my room and have a couple of scotches with me. This was in 1980. It was just hard to imagine. 
Well, the scotch, <laughs> how bad the scotch was. was. <laughs> it was not the Marriott. It was in those little bottles. You're right. No, but it was the openness and the willingness of mm. this uh, senior person to, to, to have a conversation. And he regaled me with stories of his life in solitary confinement in the Jintung prison and how he uh, recited Pushkin to keep himself sane, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I think the other thing interesting about that is the, the Encyclopedia Publishing House itself was founded in 1978, right after, in just at the beginning of Gaiga Kaifang, reform and opening. And their job was to try to make knowledge available to China. And uh, it had the green light from Deng Xiaoping, and these were very forward-looking people. China was desperate to learn and to open up. And I think it's that um, that drive to... Uh, to be more open and to learn and study, uh, that is the most uh, salient feature of uh, my experience with China over the past 35 years. And it's still very much there today. I look at the, young, the, the people I get to know at Peking University, the people who are in our program, and they're still driven by that same thirst for knowledge, experience, and change. So, you know, you look at China at a given, any given snapshot moment, and you say, this is confusing, I don't know what's going on, I can't read the tea leaves, but then you say there's a bigger long-term trend that I'm pretty confident uh, will continue. Exactly how it all plays out, we don't know, but it gives me some uh, some optimism. Well, let's talk about one of those bigger long-term trends. And, and your whole career has been kind of linked to this trend, to the, the whole phenomenon of globalization, which I would say is you know the most important global trend since the end of the Second War. What's it like now watching the fundamental premises of, of globalization challenged and in some quarters actually rejected, repudiated? I mean, is this, do you, do you feel like perhaps this may be the end of globalization or is this just a minor setback? I, I don't think it's the end. I think that certain things are going to be renegotiated. The TPP is a great example of an attempt to create slightly different terms of trade and so on. But the um, communication, technology, and everything else, this isn't going to stop uh, unless, of course, we have some massive explosion of tribalism and global warfare and so on. That's Something like that could happen. Oh, bets are off. But... I, I don't think it's over, and I think what we're seeing is shifts in production, shifts in uh, um, growth patterns. You see, in, I was in Indonesia recently in Myanmar, very fast growth in those places. India's taking off. These are countries that are, that are integrating in the world, and China's having to make adjustments. Obor, for example, One Belt, One Road is their attempt to, to try to, um, to come up with a different approach that takes into account their own challenges, rising costs, etc., cetera, uh, overcapacity. So it's all shifting, but it's not over by any means. So perhaps I can ask about a time when perhaps some of the basic ideas of globalization were also questioned. You were chair of the American Chamber of Commerce in China during what I remember as one of the most interesting years in, in, in China, 1997, as the financial crisis that began in Thailand began to spread throughout East Asia. I remember doubts beginning to spread in the media and in conversations I'd hear in Beijing. You know, would China's growing economy tank? 
with the fact that the financialized economies of many Asian countries uh, were seeing troubles, would that convince the Chinese Communist Party to abandon markets and go back to their Marxist, Leninist and Maoist traditions? What were the power brokers at the American Chamber talking about that year? What was the, the feeling on the ground about China's direction in 1997? Well, I guess we never really felt that we were power brokers. We were poor employees of multinationals trying to make a buck. And <laughs> but uh, no, we were uh, we were optimistic about China. We wanted MFN to be taken off the table. We wanted China in the WTO. Uh, that ultimately did happen. It was a good thing for China, and I think ultimately, long term, although there have been losers in that in that deal, uh, I think it's a good thing. Uh, for the, for the world to to be better integrated economically. Uh, by the way, there's a. I just wanted to mention that there is this mi- urban myth, if you will, that uh, business and China experts were guaranteeing that PNTR would somehow liberalize China. Uh, I don't think that anybody was saying that in those days. I think I'd like to, make, to correct the record. Uh, we were saying that this was uh, would be a good thing. It would continue. China's opening and reform, that's for sure. John, may, may I just interrupt you? Could you yeah. uh, explain what PNTR is for people who may not be familiar yeah, some with some of the our younger and, listeners and may not context. remember it. No, of course. It's, uh, it's permanent normal trade relations status, and that's what you have to accord a country if you are going to approve them uh, entry into the WTO. And, of course, every, con- every member country has to approve a new member's entry. So the U.S. was critical, but there were other countries that, that followed and, and, and perhaps steps. remind people what had happened to MFN, to Most Favored Nation Trade Status, after 1989 and how it was up for annual uh, vote. In, indeed. Uh, so Congress mandated that it needed to be renewed uh, every year, and there were reviews of human rights issues in China and so on. So there was a lobbying effort uh, by a number of actors, including American business, perhaps the most important, uh, to try to get this uh, renewed. We felt that it was the right thing to do, and ultimately it uh, it did happen, and uh, not without uh, an awful lot of drama because Zhu Rongji mm-hmm. went, and went to the U.S. in 1999 thinking he had a deal with Bill Clinton. Clinton hadn't completed his political uh, lobbying, and uh, he went home empty-handed. Subsequent to that was the embassy bombing, bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, and a huge rupture in U.S.-China relations. Everything got back on track within... 12 to 18 months, and it was eventually done. But yeah, it was a, those days were quite different. And many people admired Zhu Rongji because he had the vision and courage to persuade his fellow leaders that um, opening up China, making it bound to international agreements on terms of trade and so on, would ultimately be good for them. And he was absolutely right. Um, but it took, took courage because there were many people who were afraid of that within China. So yeah, it's it's um, it's made a big difference. John, as chairman of AmCham at the time, you had really rarefied access to some of these figures in China, uh, you know, powerful figures in China, such as Zhu Rongji, who, who you know, as Jeremy is noting, out of the financial crisis, um, really helped to architect um, China's emergence from that crisis. You know, everyone expected it to be another domino that would fall after Thailand, after Hong Kong, and it just didn't. And also, you know, uh, Wu Yi, who is vice premier and the only woman to have risen to that level um, on China's state council. 
both have the reputation of being quite approachable by party standards. So would you say that that's correct? And what were they like um, to meet with and and to talk with? And was Wee's nickname, the Iron Lady, justified? (laughs) Oh, well, she was was absolutely charming. She was a a heck of a negotiator. She Mm. was fun to talk with. And uh, and Zhu Rongji himself had a great uh, sense of humor. He was witty. He was engaging. He was very smart. Both of these people were very, very smart. So we did have access, and um, we had a lot of fun. In the 90s, and certainly earlier in the 80s, if you came in and you were a big company with a checkbook and you were talking about, uh, say, a $20 million or a $50 million investment in China, that pretty much guaranteed you a meeting with the Minister of uh, Foreign Trade or the or even the premier, because China was uh, dependent um, in many ways on foreign investment for a lot of its growth, uh, both in technology and in um, in just GDP terms. So yeah, we had a lot of access, and I remember Zhu Rongji in 1999 at the big event that we hosted for him in Washington. He said, by the way, to a, to a room full of Americans, I really like American business in China. One of the reasons is you pay your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Example of his sense of humor. He was very, he was very, very charming. Missed by many of us. John, can I go back to what you were saying when I interrupted you? You, you were talking about the idea that many people expressed that American business interests were using, you know, China's liberalization, a potential liberalization, as a justification for investment in China in the early years of reform and opening up. Do you want to continue with that train of thought? Yeah, the idea that PNTR was going to, to result in liberalization. Political liberalization. Well, it wasn't necessarily political liberalization that was, was on the table because um, business is interested in economic reforms and economic openness, predictability, a good legal system that protected their interests and so on. Uh, whether China became democratic was not something that the CEOs were particularly concerned about and didn't feel... Uh, they knew. Frankly, business people don't know much about those questions mm. in general, and so they sure. they're not the best uh, judges. So yeah, but we did feel we saw that China was um, where it was headed economically. It needed to uh, rely on markets. It needed to get its um, hands out of the planning of um, of the of the economy, and we saw big opportunities. And the other thing is that's interesting about MNCs. The big companies have experience opening up markets all over the world, and they have a big leg up when it comes to new economies. They can see things that they know are going to happen. For Cargill, for example, we knew that with rising incomes, people would eat more meat. That was just right. It's an ironclad law of development. So we, mm-hmm. uh, and that they would need more cooking oil. So we invested in those things, mm. and that was true of a lot of other areas. Coca-Cola didn't wasn't. Um, discouraged in the late 70s when when the Chinese people told them, by the way, we don't drink cold drinks and we don't like sugary f- drinks and we think your product tastes like medicine, therefore you're going to fail. They didn't buy that. They knew that <laughs> people around the world like Coca-Cola eventually. So so there was, there was a lot of um, confidence, I think, uh, among foreign businesses that they would be successful in China. And in fact, they have been successful. And even today, uh, they're making good profits in China. Although they are concerned um, about the future, it's looking less rosy and it's becoming a more difficult place to do business now. Let's talk about that, the more difficult business climate. AmCham has, of course, put out a white paper annually about the business climate in China. Talk about how that has has shifted over the years and what you think has, has 
maybe precipitated some of the inflection that we've seen in your you know long years as as head of AmCham and at uh, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Kaiser, I got to stop stop you from saying long years and so on. I'm feeling really <laughs> angry. I was, I was feeling quite young this morning. I got up on campus and saw a bunch I, of students. I, I, I forgot to look in the mirror. And then all my, of a sudden- I have to interject. My nickname for John and, and people of his of his um, generation is Ent. So, you know, when I see John, I always think of it as like an Ent sighting. <laughs> something That's, that is quite thanks, thanks a lot, Ada. You, very you, long years. Well, you're John. You're, Tribune, ever, you're ever youthful. You're ever youthful uh, yourself. But um, yeah, I think that it just makes me feel better about being here 18 years, knowing that you're always ahead of me. That's true, and I always will. Yes, yeah. that's so, correct. Well, so one of the things that uh, has been really useful in the engagement between the chambers, and I, I say the American Chamber, EU Chamber of Commerce, and others. Uh, with the Chinese government have been these the preparation of these white papers that go into quite considerable detail about the business climate in a range of areas. And these things have been um, handed personally to uh, foreign trade ministers, ministers of commerce, and so on over the years. And they're read quite carefully by the Chinese. And I think it's a, uh, it's part of lobbying efforts that have been generally quite successful. The barriers that have been coming up recently in certain areas of the economy, the lack of openness in technology fields and so on, is um, is troubling for, for foreign business in China. Mm. And there are aspects of regulations that are less welcoming, uh, and that's certainly a problem. And I think the, the chambers do a great job of, of highlighting what those are. Uh, at the same time, however, this is a, an economy where competition has gotten tougher for everybody. My Chinese friends who are in business some in some sectors are doing fine. Others are having real problems. So it's getting more competitive. There's excess capacity, we know, in, in quite a number of industries. So it's tougher to make a buck in China. And then the third point I'd like to make is that the, the global environment is shifting. As China's labor costs go up, uh, we see that uh, certain other markets are looking more attractive. So MNCs may shift some of their investment dollars from China to places like India, Indonesia, Myanmar, and and Africa. Markets are developing as well, so the China market is is slowing a bit. Still, there are opportunities here, and uh, I think that while you don't have the same access to senior Chinese leaders as you once had at the provincial level and local level, there's still a lot of a lot of open arms for investment. And uh, so perhaps one has to work a little bit harder to be successful here. So do you think that the state of gloominess amongst, that you see at least in the press, uh, including statements by some of the leading foreign uh, business people who have a lot of experience in China, you know, the last few years, have gone very, very negative on uh, the opportunities for multinational companies in China. Do you think this is a little bit overwrought? I think it's understandable, and it is. We're, we're in a very odd period of China's development, uh, politically and economically. A lot of things are changing. A lot of things are uncertain, and that that uncertainty leads to concern and um, indecision. Business doesn't like that, so uh, I think it's quite understandable why there's a certain gloom in the air. Whether it turns out whether people are looking ahead enough over the next 
Horizon, I don't know. I mean, China has been a story for in my lifetime of two steps forward, one step back. We may mm. be in one step back at the moment. Do we continue that trend forward? Um, I hope so. So far, that's been a good bet. Um, but it's it's not as obvious. There are a lot more moving parts. It's a much bigger place. There, are, um, Everything is more complicated than it used to be. Based on your experience and perspective then, would you have advice for people in the sector, you know, for foreign companies um, in China? Um, like three things that, I mean, if you can sum it up in three things, are there three pieces of advice that you would give to them or three mistakes to avoid? The one bit of advice that I always give people is really, really dig deep and understand the market because mm. it's there are unique aspects of this market. I mean, you, where else would you have a huge, such a huge part of the retail trade going through online? Mm. Uh, Alibaba and Taobao, those, those guys. That's that's very surprising. Nobody expected it to grow this this fast. Mm. There's a there's a lot of things that we um, need to understand better about uh, what's happening here. And so I would double down on my research. I would double down on networking and figuring out what's going on. What's the next trend? Mm. What's going to happen? And I think uh, businesses sometimes get a little bit complacent. Many multinationals are well-established here, but I question whether some of them are doing enough to to, to do the cutting-edge research about new trends in mm. the Chinese market. Mm. Maybe not. Mm. John, so what about mistakes? Uh, you know, wh what do you think the biggest mistakes you've seen foreign companies make in, in China are? The biggest mistakes typically are when you have a CEO who comes in having read a briefing book on the airplane and then proceeds to make a whole bunch, bunch of decisions uh, from the seat of his or her pants. Um, so you've had a, a, a lot of poor leadership in the early days in particular. The other thing is an inability to... People just haven't figured out how to have conversations with customers. And uh, there, there are unique ways in China with social media that um, you have to learn. You have to learn that language. Mm. It's hard. Yeah, my sense is that a lot of American companies came in and were very convinced about the inherent strength of their brand, that that alone would carry them, and that they, they you know, the same sort of brand communication strategies that had worked for them in North America or in Europe were going to work in China, and that simply was not always the case. And there, there was an awful lot of hubris in this. But it seems to me that uh, the minefield is pretty well mapped now. I mean, that you know, it, it doesn't take much, you, you know, 10 minutes of reading online, and you can figure out what most of the, the colossal blunders that American multinationals have made coming into China would be, at least notionally. But it, it, things, things changed. And I think one factor that people have a great deal of difficulty wrapping their heads around is uh, the apparent capriciousness sometimes of, of the regulatory environment. Uh, how, how does that figure into your thinking? Uh, how, how does one get one's head around uh, regulation? I'm thinking in particular about recent years in the tech sector and how difficult it's been for major American tech players, especially maybe post-Snowden. How, how has that looked from where you sit? I'm very sympathetic to anybody trying to operate in that field because you have you have business running up against uh, national security concerns. Mm. Right. And you're not, you're not going to win those arguments. Right. It's very, very difficult. You know, even in even for Cargill in the, in the days when 
we were trying to export wheat and soybeans and so on to China. There was a there was a Chinese national security issue of food security. They mm-hmm. wanted to have enough right. of their own their that own red food. line. Right, right. There was a red line. So this is this is very very difficult and. Um, uh, nobody's innocent in this. You know, there are problems around the world with different countries, and policies are keeping people jumping. Mm. I think I'd also say that it's harder now, um, given the amount of competition in China from domestic firms, uh, given the anti-corruption uh, campaign. It's harder to get closer to to um, rules ma- rule makers. It's harder to get close closer to government. Um, That's right. They've got, Used to be we, you know, if we want to talk to somebody in the Ministry of Agriculture. We give them a call and go over and we have a nice, nice chat. Now they've they've got seven hundred people calling them every day, so they don't have time. So it's different. It's it's changed. Is it that they don't have time, or is there also a shift in the attitude towards towards the West and foreign business? I I think that, you know, in many cases there are there are options. There are domestic options. You're right. not the only player in town. You're right. not the only guy with a shiny toy. There's there are other people. Um, locally who can uh, solve a problem mm-hmm. so you know and maybe one of them is somebody that you know yeah so there's just much more competition for the eyes and ears of regulators yes yes so if i may shift topics a little uh john you are as we mentioned in the introduction associate dean of the yenjing academy at peking university which is China's most prestigious tertiary education institution, unless you happen to be a graduate or student of Tsinghua. So what is the Yanjing Academy, and why does it not use the standard romanization system of pinyin to spell its name? <laughs> ah, it's to, it's to trick, trip you up. No, well, if you, if you uh, agree with me that the Times Higher Education Supplement is, is an accurate ranking, we are 29th in the world, and Tsinghua is 34th. So. Ha-ha! <laughs> um, but in terms of a, as a place to study the humanities and social sciences and as a place that has played huge roles in China's intellectual history and political history, uh, there's no place like Peking University. They've got mm. a wall around it. There's guards and gates and so on. It, it has a, there's a, there's a sanctification, a sanctified position for Beida in the Chinese uh, education world. And it's well-deserved, I believe. We, we have a great program. It's called Yanqing because we're using some buildings that are part of the original Yanqing University, which was an American institution of higher learning in China pre-liberation. Wow. That uh, was very, very influential. Um, was that built with American boxer indemnity money? It, it was not. No. This, <laughs> uh, it was not. It was... Um, it was I'm thinking a, of something else. I'm peaking in medical Qing- college and... Uh, no, you're you're thinking of Tsinghua. Tsinghua was, which but also we, doesn't spell its name with standard P in romanization. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And uh, so, haha, so, number thirty-four. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, so it's a a bit of a, from us from Peking University. It's a tip of a hat to a uh, a legacy of of uh, Peking University, uh, and it's a tip of a hat to the fact that this is very very international. So we've got a, a program that's highly competitive. Uh, we're in our second year. We have 124 students from 42 countries, uh, ranging from, of course, the United States, but to a uh, number of countries in Euro- Europe. We have uh, France, Germany, but also Estonia. We have uh, we have people from Kyrgyzstan, from Iran. 
And I happen to be acquainted with a handful of, of, of delightful young women from, from uh, South Africa, from Zimbabwe, uh, and from Lesotho even, and Swazi, Swaziland, actually. Swaziland, yeah. Yeah, yeah Swaziland. those are four, four women from the University of Cape Town. Oh, they're Kana, great. In our, in we, our we, first, yeah. first cohort. Right, we, we, we actually tried to record a podcast with them, and uh, we had encountered terrible technical difficulties, and uh, unfortunately, I was moving, and I was unable to, to re-record the podcast, but I owe them, and we'll definitely do that again at some point when we get to China. They were wonderful. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great group, and I've, uh, you know, just the other night, I spent uh, uh, spent an hour and a half talking with, uh, with one of our students from Kenya, who's Harvard-educated, but she grew up in a tiny little village, uh, first person in her family to go to college and this is a tremendous experience for her and for the lucky other uh, fellow students who've now got a chance to get her perspectives on both Africa, China, etc. So it's it's a really fun program. It's a one-year master's in China studies and we pay for everything. The architect of the new buildings at the Yanjing Academy is uh, Gerald Zito who is a friend of mine, and I also know some of his work. I've been involved with the Australian National University's uh, yeah. Australian Centre on China in the World, whose buildings right. he also designed. Can you tell us just a little bit about the the new buildings that he designed for the academy? Sure. Well, uh, Gerald uh, redesigned existing buildings. We don't have any of our new. They're they're not uh, brand new buildings. They're they were gutted and and rebuilt, um, and they're a very tasteful. Uh, Chinese themes that uh, are really quite beautiful. Uh, you'll, if you've been to the Stanford Center at Peking University, you'll see some similarities there. But we, we absolutely love the buildings. Um, we're right in the heart of campus. Our, our students feel that they're not just Yanqing scholars, but they're Beidaren. They're really Peking University students. And that's a feature of the program that I think is absolutely essential and is a big distinguisher from certain other programs at other universities. That well, I had the, the very great <laughs> honor of speaking last year at uh, at the uh, symposium, and that was was it earlier this year actually at the symposium. That was an absolute delight, and uh, got to know some of the scholars there. Yeah, we're, they're, uh, they're going to do another impressed. another edition of the uh, the Engine Global Symposium. There's going to be a social innovation forum coming up this fall that the new co- cohort is organizing. Oh, marvelous! We got an awful lot of really terrific uh, initiatives coming coming up. By the way, I wanted to just say something that. Um, Every year I, well, every year, this is the second year where I talk to the students when they first come, and I get them all in a room and spend half an hour, 45 minutes giving them some insights about how do you think about China. And the the theme of my talk this year was humility, because mm. I think anybody who tries to come to grips with China, a country of with a very rich civilization, long history, very big country, very diverse and so on, changing rapidly. You just have to be humble in recognizing that there are things that you will get wrong. There are yeah. things that you'll miss. I feel that's that way every day. I'm missing things. I'm learning new things about China. I'm part of a state-owned enterprise, and I'm, I'm having a great time. I'm getting new <laughs> insights into China. It is absolutely fascinating. But you got to stay humble. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Great observation. And terrific advice. John, you're going to be spending less time in China going forward. I understand that you've just uh, acquired a fine property in my hometown of Tucson, Arizona. Is that correct? Well, we did buy a house in Tucson. We love it down there. But I'm, I've got a full-time job here. I'm, it's really tough to spend much time there. So, okay. yeah, in the, sum, in the summer, I'll, I'll be, be there a little bit with Isabel. But, uh, no, it's, uh, I'm still... I'm still 
pretty committed here. Okay, well, if you need a house sitter, uh, <laughs> yeah, put my hand well, up for that. We might be we might be in Bali over Christmas. So the the house will be empty. You can, you're welcome to stay there. Well, Jeremy, are going to get down to to, to Arizona anyway because we've got a bunch of people to interview, including Sid Rittenberg, uh, although he's a little further north. But maybe we'll take you up on that. <laughs> Sounds good. We are getting good. to the end of the show. Thanks so much, John, for 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 taking the time to join us uh, and. Uh, before we get to our recommendation segment, which we hope you'll you'll stick around for and, and, and make a recommendation, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. Follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to leave us a kind and positive review over at the Apple App Store. Recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, just a short article in the South China Morning Post uh, coinciding with uh, Li Keqiang, Premier Li Keqiang's visit to Cuba, which happened the weekend before we recorded this podcast. And the article is about the Chinese-Cuban uh, or the Cuban-Chinese community, I think mostly in Havana, Um and just one of those interesting corners of the Chinese diaspora that uh, you know I'm not too familiar with. Let's go check it out. What do you say? I oh, mean, yes. Thinking about maybe going over to Cuba, huh? Oh yes, that'll be fun. Not going over in that sense. <laughs> well, I was I was there in '97, and um, yeah, it was pretty nice. <laughs> you guys should get get over there before it changes too much. Yeah, yeah. Ada, why don't you go up next? <laughs> Um, okay, so this is less of a recommendation uh, because the book isn't out yet and more of a heads up. Um, so uh, Ian uh, Johnson um, has a book called The Souls of China, which will be, it, it, we're getting some previews um, out about it now, um, but it sounds just amazing. It's, it's basically about um, the development of religion in, in China post-Mao. Uh, Souls of China, I think it's out next uh, in the spring. Ian, bring back the typing. Johnson is always good at, at writing on feudal superstition. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's important that we understand, you know, the the deep psychological needs for this opiate. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm joking. I have deep reverence for Ian. Bring back the typing, Johnson, <laughs> and for yeah, the fairy tales. Anyway, uh, why don't we we go to John? John, what recommendation have ye for us this week? Well, it's a book that hasn't yet come out. It's John Pomfret's new book on the history of U.S.-China relations. It's coming out. It's going to be published November 29th. I've ordered my copy. I'm dying to read it. I, I loved uh, John's uh, first book about China. He was actually my student at Stanford. He oh, was, wow. I was his TA for first-year Chinese. I'm a, I'm a big fan of him and, uh, and Zhang Mei, so it's going to be an, uh, an outstanding book. You know Zhang Mei has a book coming out around the same time too, right? I do, his yeah. wife. Actually, it's out. It's out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. Hey, I guess maybe uh, while we're recommending books that haven't come out yet, Jeremy, would you be so kind as to pass me that backpack right there? I just want to get the title right. So Jeremy and I actually both just recently received uh, galley copies from Knopf uh, for Howard French's forthcoming book. It's called Everything Under the Heavens. 
how the past helps shape China's push for global power. And I was just emailing with Howard just before we started recording uh, to book a date for us to talk to him about his book, which I'm sure is going to be excellent because I'm deeply appreciative of his writing. Um, it'll be great. So since we you can't leave it at you know three recommendations for books that haven't come out yet, I'm going to uh, <laughs> add one that was is, is, is not actually a China-related book. Uh, it's... The Landmark Thucydides. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this Landmark series. Uh, I, I've talked about the Landmark Herodotus before on this show. I'm now reading this Thucydides for an online group, uh, which was convened, or at least that I was dragged into, by Tanner Greer, whose name I've said now mm. like six times on this podcast. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, I've never even met the guy, but you know we're, we're sort of Facebook buddies, and he's, he's just, here in he's here in Beijing now. He's yeah, just have you here. met him yet? Have you met not him? Not yet, yet, not yet. Looking okay, forward you'll have to, to meet it. him and ch- check yeah, him yeah. out. And give Absolutely. me the skinny on this guy. Anyway, really <laughs> uh, illuminating to read this or or Herodotus actually next to Sima Qian. Uh, Sima Qian is, of course, you know, the grand historian of China, and um, I have those those old. I mean, they're all falling apart. I've just ordered new copies of my Sima Qian, um, and it's it's pretty hard to conclude that there isn't already a kind of divergence in in the approach to history and to the historiographic approach that's already kind of present there in classical times between the Chinese and 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 the Greeks. Uh, something I I may explore in the future, you know, when I'm retired. Anyway, thank you so much, John, for taking the time to join us. And it was, all, it's, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. It's been fun. I, um, we'll do it again sometime. We'll come down uh, and see absolutely. you in Dur- Durham. Yeah, where you, you get special uh, special <laughs> deals on, on chewing tobacco down there. <laughs> <laughs> deals Actually. on chewing tobacco and segregated bathrooms. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ada, as always, it was great to have you back. Thanks. Thanks for having and me, guys. And Jeremy, as always, man. Uh, I'll take you out to some good barbecue tomorrow. You can, we can do the sort of, you know, Nashville, Durham barbecue comparison. Barbecue comparison, yeah. right. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng and to Soraya Darabi from SubChina. And, of course, to our friends from The Bookworm in Beijing drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Seneca podcast and follow us on Twitter at at Seneca podcast. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Take care. <laughs>